The new season of Famous Fates, titled Falls from Grace, is underway. Every Wednesday, we feature two new episodes that focus on a different scandalous figure from history. To ensure you don't miss out on these fascinating stories, head over to the Famous Fates feed and give a follow. These episodes are all free and only available on Spotify. In 1770, teenage Marie Antoinette arrived in France to marry future King Louis XVI. The people embraced her. That is, until her lavish spending during years of financial crisis made them lose their heads and, as a result, made her lose hers. If you'd like to hear today's other episode on the epic rise and fall of Sir Walter Raleigh, check out the Famous Fates feed on Spotify and subscribe today. Fourteen-year-old Marie Antoinette stood on the threshold of a new life. Quite literally, she was on an island in the middle of the Rhine River under a grand tent which had been erected precisely on the border between two countries. Behind her was Austria, the only home she'd ever known. In front of her was France, an alien country where she would one day rule as queen. Peering over the invisible border, she envisioned the gowns, the balls, the little princes and princesses she would raise. What she couldn't imagine were the vicious rumors of adultery and incest that would stick to her like glue. The mobs of hungry peasants who would threaten her and her family, or the revolution that would rewrite history and tear apart her life in the process. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. And this is Season 2 of Famous Fates Falls from Grace. This season, we're examining once-revered historical figures whose stories ended in less-than-savory ways. Every week, we're bringing you two episodes examining the lives of two fascinating people in the same industry. They were beloved for their incredible accomplishments until they were reviled for their sins. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. This is our first of two episodes on nobles who fell out of favor. Today, we're covering 18th century Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, one of the most revered and reviled characters in world history. Born an Austrian archduchess, she fought for acceptance in her husband's French court. But as soon as Marie found her footing at Versailles, she was swept up by the wave of revolution as it crashed over France, washing the streets of Paris in blood. We'll dive into Marie Antoinette's turbulent life after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On the afternoon of October 22nd, 1781, Marie Antoinette lay in bed, exhausted and covered in sweat. The 25-year-old queen had just given birth to her second child in a grand room full of courtiers and members of the royal family. It seemed that the baby was healthy from the sound of the crying, but Marie still hadn't been told the baby's sex. An all-important fact. She desperately needed to produce a male heir to the French throne. After a few minutes, her husband, King Louis XVI, came in and broke the news. Madame, you have fulfilled our wishes and those of France. You are the mother of a Dauphin. Marie breathed a sigh of relief as the gathered onlookers broke into cheers and applause. It had taken her more than a decade, but she had finally carried out her most important duty as queen. Some of the anxiety she had been feeling since she first arrived in Versailles began to fade away. This birth would finally win her the respect of the court, at least on the surface. But even superficial respect was better than what she'd faced the past few years. From the time Marie had married King Louis, people had whispered loudly about the Austrian woman. Though the French couldn't deny that she carried herself with impeccable grace, they were inherently suspicious of her as a foreigner. France and Austria had only recently entered into an alliance. Before that, they had fought on opposite sides of wars going back over a hundred years. Naturally, the alliance was tense. It didn't help that Marie's marriage to King Louis went unconsummated for seven years. The royal couple were only teenagers when they were wed. Marie, 14, her husband, 15. Their shared awkwardness and inexperience contributed to their slow start in the marriage bed. But now, with the birth of her first son, Marie Antoinette was finally on firm ground. As was the custom, the baby, named Louis-Joseph, was baptized immediately. Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan did the honors as the religious leader of the royal household. Marie held a bit of a grudge against Rohan as he had helped spread some of the uglier rumors about her, but not even the unpleasantness of having him around could put a damper on Marie's joy. 
At court, the buoyant mood was further lifted by news from across the Atlantic. A few years after entering the fray, French forces had helped the Americans defeat England in the Battle of Yorktown. Soldiers soon returned to France from the American Revolution, bringing back stories of fighting against an oppressive king. These tales planted seeds of dissent that would later blossom to dramatic effect. But for the time being, the monarchy, particularly the queen, was ascendant. The whispers of the courtiers took on a new, admiring tone when she brushed past them in the gilded corridors of Versailles. Shortly after the Dauphin's birth, Marie and the king hosted a ball. The queen was radiant in an elaborate blue dress studded with diamonds and sapphires. A young lady of the court described Marie as young, beautiful, and adored by all. Everyone at court wanted to curry her favor, even Cardinal de Rois, who for years took pleasure in spreading cruel rumors about the queen, now tried to ingratiate himself to her. Without the poison of exclusion, Marie could finally enjoy the creature comforts of being queen. And there were many. She spent her days between her lush apartments and gilded private rooms in Versailles. When Versailles became too stifling, she retreated to the nearby Petit Triano, where she was completely in charge. A wedding gift from King Louis, the Triano was Marie's refuge, where she could relax amongst her inner circle. Naturally, the furnishings and decorations of both Versailles and the Triano were regularly updated to keep up with the latest fashions. And speaking of fashion, the queen spared no expense when it came to dressing to the nines. Even in the 18th century, Paris was the heart of the fashion world. And as the queen of France, Marie Antoinette looked the part. She took pleasure in purchasing elaborate dresses and shoes and having her hair styled in towering bouffants. Whatever she wore instantly became the latest trend in Paris. Life was good. Delightful, even. But not everything was as delightful as it seemed. Marie knew that behind the scenes, a major threat to her power and her happiness was mounting. Though at first the young Dauphin seemed perfectly healthy, as the months went by, he became sickly and fragile. This put a double burden on Marie. As a mother, she was worried about her son's health. As a queen, she feared that if she lost her son, her position at court would be permanently damaged. To secure her power, she knew she had to produce another male heir. By May 1783, the queen was pregnant again. But on November 2nd of 1783, her 28th birthday, she suffered a miscarriage. It took several months for her to recover physically and likely much longer for the emotional wound to heal. However, there was little time for grieving. She was still determined to have more children, and as if to will a growing family into existence, she sought a larger summer estate. In the fall of 1784, Marie asked the king to acquire Saint-Cloud Palace to house their future children. Located just outside Paris, the property didn't come cheap, at the staggering price of six million livres. But surely if their children would be happy growing up there, it was a fair price to pay. 
Unfortunately, the people of Paris felt very differently about the Saint-Cloud acquisition. The issue was that the king gave the palace to Marie as a personal gift, rather than purchasing it as property of the French crown. Parisians were scandalized by this unprecedented generosity and protested what they saw as immoral behavior. While the queen's ailing son threatened her position at court, whispers about Saint-Cloud became another point of vulnerability, revitalizing mistrust about the schemes of an Austrian outsider. Rumors even spread that the palace would pass to the emperor of Austria on the queen's death. Marie Antoinette knew her name was once again the talk of the town, but at least it wasn't the court whispering about her this time. The French public's discontents were far enough away to ignore, so she threw herself into decorating Saint-Cloud. Unfortunately, this created another opportunity for the French people to criticize her lavish spending. The queen had her third child, Louis Charles, on Easter Sunday, March 27, 1785. But even this propitious birth wasn't enough to stop the rumor mill. In the streets of Paris, satirists waved pamphlets in the air, luring in buyers with increasingly outrageous stories about the queen. The more sordid, the better. Marie was portrayed as extravagant, foolish, and sexually insatiable. She was accused of engaging in trysts with men and women indiscriminately. Libellistes, the tabloids of their time, also personally blamed the queen for the country's growing financial woes. This strife was, in fact, caused by years of warfare and corruption, but exaggerations sold more papers than facts. Authors greatly embellished events that Marie hosted at her Petit Triano. Her parties were described as orgies, her dinners as opulent feasts. Reading about such luxury and excess while people were starving in the streets generated a strong resentment toward the wealthy royals, specifically Marie. The queen did her best to appear indifferent, but she couldn't escape the fact that the gossip was beginning to seriously impact her reputation throughout France. So she did her best to prove the rumors wrong. When Charles Bémer, the royal jeweler, tried to sell her a ludicrously expensive diamond necklace, she refused, despite the fact that it contained 647 individual beautiful jewels. But then something strange happened. On July 12, 1785, the queen received a letter from Bémer saying that he was happy that he'd finally made a deal to sell her the most beautiful set of diamonds in the world. Marie didn't know what to make of the letter, so she put it out of her mind. Unfortunately, the matter wouldn't be put to rest so easily. A few weeks later, Beymer desperately sought an audience with the queen, but she refused to see him. Marie idly asked her lady of the bedchamber, Madame Compo, if she had any idea why the jeweler was acting so strangely, Compo admitted that she'd had a disturbing conversation with Beymer, which she relayed to the queen. Beymer was under the impression that he had sold the exorbitant diamond necklace to Marie. The jeweler claimed to have a note, signed by the queen herself, that granted Cardinal de Roa permission to buy the piece on her behalf. 
When Marie heard this, she was shocked and furious. She never authorized anyone to buy the necklace for her. She didn't even want it. So if a note to that effect was floating around with her signature on it, it was forged, which was an audacious crime in itself. Wanting to settle the matter once and for all, Marie brought in Baron du Brote, minister of the royal household. He would handle the situation. It just so happened that Brate had his own long-standing beef with Rouen. When he learned that his rival was involved in a scandal, he decided to capitalize on the opportunity to destroy Rouen completely. However, with all the vicious things being said about Marie Antoinette in the streets of Paris, Brate's priority should have been resolving the affair quietly to protect the queen's already damaged reputation. The morning of August 15, 1785, found Cardinal de Rouen formally dressed in his red pontifical robes, ready to celebrate Mass. However, he was urgently summoned to the king's private chambers instead. The king didn't waste any time on pleasantries. Louis immediately began questioning Rouen, demanding to know who had told him to buy the necklace for his wife. Rouen answered that a woman named Comtesse Jeanne de la Moutte had given him a letter in the Queen's own hand, commissioning him to make the purchase on her behalf. At this, Marie interrupted, enraged. How would Rouen think she would choose him for such a delicate arrangement when they hadn't as much as spoken in eight years? And why would she use this de la Moutte woman as an intermediary? The Queen had never even heard of her. Rouen, defiant, produced the offending note, which was signed Marie Antoinette de France. But far from exonerating him, the letter made Rouen's situation much worse. The problem lay in the last two words, de France. All nobles knew that the queen always signed her name Marie Antoinette. King Louis was enraged that Rouen had fallen for such an obvious fake. Indeed, the mistake was so egregious that the king suspected Rouen of playing a larger role in the sinister plot. However, it was more likely that the cardinal simply deceived himself into accepting the note as genuine because he desperately wanted to believe he had a chance of getting back into the queen's good books. But by this point, any shot he had at forgiveness was long gone. As soon as the cardinal had written down his account of events, King Louis had him arrested. This made for quite a scene at court. Rouen was still wearing his elaborate red pontifical robes. King Louis further directed Brate to collect Rouen's private papers in Paris and take the cardinal to be locked up in the Bastille. The queen took some comfort in seeing Rouen taken away in irons. Perhaps the whole affair would quickly be sorted out and forgotten. If only she knew how wrong she was. Up next, Marie Antoinette is pulled into a massive scandal and becomes the most hated woman in France. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In August of 1785, 29-year-old Marie Antoinette had more than her fair share of problems. In print, people questioned the paternity of her children and disparaged her for overspending on lavish feasts while commoners starved in the streets. And soon, a new scandal threatened to destroy what was left of the Queen's good name. Marie was furious to hear that Cardinal de Rohan, an old adversary of hers, had purchased a wildly expensive diamond necklace allegedly on her behalf. Then, he had the nerve to come to collect payment. The whole mess had to be cleaned up immediately before it got out of hand. Eager to clear his wife's name, King Louis had Rohan arrested on the spot. In his haste, he let his emotions cloud his judgment. It would have been more prudent to handle the situation discreetly. Worse, Louis then compounded his error by allowing Rohan to have a public trial in the Parliament of Paris. In another unfortunate complication, Rohan managed to secretly get a note to his servant, ensuring that all of his papers were burnt before Brate, the minister of the royal household, arrived to seize them. In the wake of this destroyed evidence, it's difficult to unravel what exactly happened. One thing seems pretty clear. The queen was completely innocent of wrongdoing. However, by this point, her name had been dragged through so much mud that the French people were primed to think she was guilty of anything. She was even accused of inventing the whole scheme just to make Rohan look bad. If anyone benefited from the scandal, it was the pamphleteers who had a field day with the affair of the diamond necklace. The plot had ready-made villains in the evil queen and corrupt religious official. And the Comtesse Jeanne de la Moutte made for a sympathetic hero as she appeared to be caught up in the intrigue of two nobles through no fault of her own. The queen herself wasn't aware of how much traction this narrative was gaining in Paris. She believed that it was patently obvious that Rohan and the Comtesse were the real criminals. Once all the facts came out at trial, she thought her name would be completely cleared. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Soon after Rohan was arrested, the Comtesse de la Moutte followed. But while the conspirators were behind bars, it was the Queen's popularity that plummeted over the following months. On top of it all, in the fall of 1785, Marie was going through a difficult pregnancy. Everything in her life seemed to be going poorly, and it was all about to get much worse. Dulamut's pre-trial brief came out in December and shocked Paris with new, wild accusations leveled against the Queen. In Dulamut's brief, she portrayed herself as an ingenue, deceived by Cardinal de Rohan. She also wrote that the Queen had a sexual relationship with Rohan, which was in keeping with the public's perception of Marie as an insatiable adulteress. Dulamut's brief was widely read and accepted. The people ate it up. 
By the time the formal trial began in May of 1786, most of the country had already made up their mind. The queen was guilty and foolish. Luckily for Marie, the parliament saw things differently when they delivered their verdict at the end of the month. Jeanne de la Moutte was brutally punished for her role in the scandal. She was to be stripped naked, beaten, and publicly branded with the letter V for volus, French for thief. Rohan was acquitted but stripped of his titles and banished from the court forever. This apparently hopeful turn continued when a few months after the disastrous trial in July, Marie gave birth to another girl, Sophie-Hélène Beatrice. However, the baby arrived earlier than expected, and the queen worried for her child's health. She also despaired about her reputation, which had been unfairly and permanently damaged thanks to the affair of the diamond necklace, despite the verdict of the parliament. Meanwhile, the king was dealing with serious problems of his own. The French crown was running out of money, and his bid to increase taxes stalled in the government. In the wake of his failure, the king dismissed the head finance official. Then, in 1787, his chief advisor and foreign minister, the Comte du Vergen, died. There was evidence that the king was suffering from a major depression. Though distressing, this political shakeup gave the queen an opening to step into a more active role. Though she wasn't much for politics, in May of 1787, she convinced the king to select Etienne de Lomini de Brienne as financial controller. Marie hoped that Brienne would be able to better manage the crown's finances to everyone's benefit. Perhaps she even hoped that by showing her concern for the practical matters of governing France, she'd win over the people. Unfortunately, she didn't. The people of France didn't share Marie's confidence in Brienne. In fact, the French people detested Brienne, possibly purely because Marie Antoinette favored him. This was a mark of how far the queen had fallen. Parisians were now hissing her at the opera, where she'd once received standing ovations as a young dauphine. In the summer, she received a new nickname, Madame Déficie, as the people blamed her lavish spending for the entire country's financial woes. Then, in a tragic turn, the Queen's baby, Sophie, died just a few weeks shy of her first birthday. Shortly after, her eldest son was bedridden with tuberculosis of the spine. But there was still a long way to go before Marie reached rock bottom, starting with a few more tricks from the sleeves of the Comtesse de la Moutte. Somehow, de la Moutte escaped from the Salpetriere prison and into London. From there, she continued dragging the Queen's name through the mud. De la Moutte alluded to having a lesbian relationship with Marie Antoinette and compared the Queen to all the worst women of history and legend. These larger-than-life insults proved impossible to shake. Meanwhile, France's financial situation continued to deteriorate more rapidly than ever. In July of 1788, the king called an urgent meeting of the Estates General, a governing body composed of members from the nobility, the clergy, and the commons. The crown's deficit had to be sorted out immediately, as the treasury was projected to go bankrupt in a matter of weeks. 
King Louis needed a miracle. Instead, he got a very different act of God. The winter of 1789 was the most severe that France had seen in generations. People froze to death in the streets and the grain harvest was decimated, which sent bread prices soaring. Parisians were desperate to blame someone other than Mother Nature for their misfortune. Soon, rumors spread that the royal family, led of course by the queen, had raised the price of bread by creating a flour shortage in order to profit from the famine. Amid this atmosphere of desperation and mistrust, a riot broke out in the streets of Paris in April, killing 300 people. The demonstration heightened tensions on both sides. The government realized the commoners were getting out of hand, while the commoners realized the government would use force to control them if necessary. A more personal tragedy struck in June of 1789, when the young Dufon finally succumbed to tuberculosis. But even in this dark moment, the libellists continued to print awful things about Marie Antoinette, saying that she'd like to poison her husband and bathe in the blood of Parisians. In a sign of growing political unrest, the common people broke away from the king's government altogether. They formed a national assembly and set out to write a completely new constitution. The Crown's decision to oust the people's choice of finance minister, Jacques Necker, triggered even more violent rioting in mid-July. All of this barely controlled rage exploded on July 14, 1789, in the storming of the Bastille. Pushed beyond their breaking point, the people of Paris rose up and tore down the great prison fortress in an attempt to arm themselves against the state. Nearly a hundred people lost their lives in an outpouring of violence. The French Revolution had begun. In this incredibly tense environment, nobles whispered that the Queen should leave France for her own safety. But Marie Antoinette couldn't leave behind her family, particularly her four-year-old son, Louis Charles, who she hoped would one day rule France, even as revolts continued throughout the summer. On October 5th of 1789, the violence escalated once again, this time coming right up to Marie's doorstep. A horde of irate market women marched the 12 miles from Paris to the palace at Versailles, undeterred by fog and rain. When they arrived, the mob demanded that King Louis release grain from the country's stores and agree to constitutional changes limiting his own powers. But even after the king granted their requests, the crowd didn't disperse. They remained outside Versailles overnight, calling for the king and the rest of the royal family to be moved to Paris. Others in the crowd made threats against the queen, demanding her head. In the middle of the night, the multitudes broke into the palace itself, killing two guards in the process. Terrified, Marie Antoinette barely escaped her apartments before the horde arrived. They proceeded to stab her bed with pikes to make sure she wasn't hiding under the sumptuous duvet. Years of hateful rumor-mongering, satire, and libel had finally manifested in an attack on her life. 
The next day, the mob forcibly removed Marie Antoinette and her family from Versailles and escorted them to Paris. The queen watched forlorn as the place she'd fought to make her home faded into the distance. No longer would the royals be able to hide away in the distant palace. They would live amongst their own people, whether they liked it or not. The family was installed in the dilapidated Tuileries Palace, where they were essentially held prisoner by the National Guards. But even the fragile peace they found within there did nothing to quell the storm brewing around them. By December of 1790, the royals had begun making serious plans to flee from France. Swedish Count Fession helped organize the escape, even buying a large coach for the royal family to travel in when the time came. Meanwhile, Marie looked on, concerned, as King Louis struggled to maintain control over a rapidly changing country. That summer, the People's National Assembly proposed an entirely new civil constitution, which forced him to accept radical political changes. And religious reforms against the French Catholic Church caused even worse problems. Priests were forced to swear an oath to the state. Any cleric who refused was forbidden from performing their holy duties. Many Catholics, including members of the royal family, were appalled by what they saw as the new government's overreach. Before Easter in 1791, the family attempted to leave Paris to attend Mass at the palace in Saint-Cloud. However, their trip devolved into a public relations nightmare when angry crowds stopped them on the roads and forced them to turn back. After this debacle, it seemed like a good idea for the entire royal family to get out of Paris as soon as possible. But with the people of France now on high alert, Marie and her family would have to plan every aspect of their getaway down to a T if they wanted to make it out alive. Up next, the queen and her family flee from France while the monarchy crumbles around them. And now back to the story. In 1791, 35-year-old Queen Marie Antoinette was under attack on all fronts. Two of her four children died within two years of each other, but Marie didn't receive any sympathy from her subjects. By this point, she was universally reviled outside Versailles. Desperate, starving, and angry, the French people were out for blood, preferably Marie Antoinette's. With everything going on in Paris, the royal family decided it was time to make themselves scarce. Over the following months, Marie helped plan for the royal family to escape to Montmédy, a town near France's northern border. There, they hoped to be far enough from Paris to ensure safety from the National Guard and Parisian mobs. It was decided that the whole family would travel together, for better or worse. On the night of June 20th, 1791, the royal family disguised themselves as commoners and snuck out of the Tuileries. Altogether, the party consisted of the king and queen, the king's sister, the two royal children, and their governess. Once they were all gathered in the massive carriage, their voyage began. 
Despite a delayed start, within 24 hours, the royal party had completed over two-thirds of their journey. For the first time in months, Marie allowed herself to hope that things might work out for her and her family after all. But their plan fell apart when they couldn't find fresh horses in a town called varennes en argonne The next morning, members of the National Assembly caught up to them with orders for the king to return to Paris immediately. The short-lived escape attempt was over. The return trip took four times as long, slowed by hostile crowds that swarmed around the carriage. The masses took the opportunity of a captive royal audience to hurl abuse at Marie Antoinette and her family for the entire trip. The stress of the ordeal took a physical toll on the queen. According to witnesses, a few months later, she had lost weight and her hair turned white. In the aftermath of the failed getaway, the king's reputation took a huge hit as well. Though he wasn't as hated as his wife, he lost most of the little political capital he had left. From that point, life at the Tuileries quickly deteriorated even further. In June of 1792, Marie and her family just barely managed to escape after an angry mob broke into the palace. Following this close call, the royals realized they were no longer safe and decided to seek asylum with the National Assembly. The government housed the royals in a palace called the Temple, where they were put into a tower and guarded day and night. A few months later, in September, the queen heard from town criers that she was no longer a queen at all. The French monarchy had officially come to an end. France was now ruled by the National Convention. In the wake of such a profound change, Marie had no idea what the future held for her or her family. Up to that point, she could at least take solace that whatever happened to them, they would endure it together. But soon, even this small consolation was taken from her. In October of 1792, Marie and her family were separated from Louis Capet, as the former king was now known. The government had discovered his personal correspondence and claimed they had enough evidence to charge him with treason. Worse still, Marie and the children were barred from any contact with Louis during his month-long trial, which, in the end, found him guilty. He was sentenced to die. The former queen was inconsolable when she heard the news. In a small act of mercy, the government allowed the family to reunite one last time before Louis was executed. After their tearful goodbyes, Marie begged for more time with her husband, but it wasn't to be. The former king went to the guillotine the next day, January 21st, 1793. Marie Antoinette, now known as the widow Capet, never recovered from the grief of losing her husband. Her mourning was intensified by the fact that her own fate was now very uncertain. According to Antonia Fraser, author of the biography Marie Antoinette, The Journey, there was no history of trying or executing queens at that time in Europe. But of course, there had never been a queen as hated as Marie Antoinette, or a revolution against a monarchy for that matter. 
The summer after her husband was executed, Marie received the heart-wrenching news that her son would be taken from her as well. By decree of the National Convention, eight-year-old Louis Charles was separated from his family and held in different rooms where soldiers were his only company. For several weeks, Marie spent her waking days peering out her window for a glimpse of her son. But soon, even that possibility was denied her. In August, she was taken to the Conciergerie prison, a move that didn't bode well for her future. This complete separation from her family was a crushing blow for Marie. But things were about to get much worse. Unbeknownst to her... The new government had already decided that Marie Antoinette had to be put to death in order to solidify the support of France's most radical commoners. The National Convention had to move with caution. Marie Antoinette's name still rustled up some sympathy thanks to her role as the mother of the former Dauphin. But luckily for the government, they soon uncovered information that they could use against her. A guard caught eight-year-old Louis Charles masturbating in his room. Once this information was relayed to the National Convention, the government twisted it, accusing Marie of teaching her son the pernicious practice and of engaging in incest. Tragically, young Charles was forced to corroborate the accusations against his mother. This repulsive lie was the final nail in the coffin for Marie Antoinette's much-maligned reputation. At the former Queen's trial, prosecutors produced a litany of stories describing lavish feasts and wild orgies that the Queen had allegedly hosted at Versailles. The witnesses might as well have been reading straight from the libelous pamphlets sold on the street. The hearsay was presented as fact without any corroborating evidence. Then the prosecution dealt its final blow by accusing Marie of engaging in incest with her eight-year-old son. Marie Antoinette remained stoic throughout the proceedings until this point, when she responded heatedly, If I have not replied, it is because nature itself refuses to respond to such a charge laid against a mother. I appeal to all mothers who may be present. This emotional plea sent a powerful wave of sympathy through the courtroom. The former queen carried herself so well during her trial that some people thought she would be found innocent and sent abroad to live out the rest of her days in relative peace. While Marie waited for the jury to deliberate, she held on to hope that she might yet avoid the guillotine. But all that faded away when she was ushered back into the courtroom. She was handed the jury's verdict and told to read it aloud. She had been found guilty on charges of treason. However, it wasn't enough just to kill the former queen. The government had to completely humiliate her first. On the morning of October 16, 1793, she was forced to dress in front of the guards without regard for her privacy or dignity. Then, adding insult to injury, she had her hair cut off and her hands bound. Despite these indignities, Marie maintained her trademark grace as she went to her death. In her final moments, a juror told her to arm herself with courage. 
She responded fiercely, saying, Courage! The moment when my ills are going to end is not the moment when courage is going to fail me. After everything she had been through, the attacks on her good name, her family, her home, the loss of her children and her husband, Marie Antoinette was ready to meet her end. Whatever awaited her on the other side couldn't be worse than what she had already endured. Finally, at a quarter past noon, Marie Antoinette was executed by guillotine. It has been said that no one present shed a tear for their former queen. Instead, her death was met with joy and excitement. The rumors that had hounded her for decades had turned her into a symbol of everything that was wrong with the monarchy. And now, that symbol had been erased from the face of the earth. Tragedy dogged Marie Antoinette's family even after her death. Her son, Louis Charles, died two years later, most likely from tuberculosis. Her daughter, Marie Therese, escaped France in 1796 and was married off to her cousin, but had a childless marriage. As a result, there are no direct descendants of Marie Antoinette, but her name lives on forever tied to the drama of the French Revolution. Fairly or unfairly, history remembers her as a woman of many faults. There's no denying she enjoyed gambling, extravagant fashion, and the general excess of life at Versailles. But she was by no means the only one. These were the common pastimes of nobility at the time, not just in France, but around Europe. Ironically, the great turns of her life, from her marriage to her imprisonment to her final execution, were all political decisions, even though by nature she wasn't politically inclined at all. As an Austrian princess in France, the deck was stacked against her from the beginning. Ultimately, she became a scapegoat, blamed for all the ills of the monarchy, and forced to die so that a new society could be born. Thanks for tuning in to Falls from Grace. We'll be back next week with two new episodes. You can find more episodes of Falls from Grace and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Balls from Grace was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Balsick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Falls from Grace was written by Nani Okwalagu, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 